Welcome to the 13th episode of Junto Club. On this episode, we start with a quote from Benjamin Franklin taking aim at smartasses before spending most of the episode on energy and the energy crisis. For any questions, comments, or if you're a high school science teacher who can help shoe out, email juntoclubpodcast at gmail.com. This is Junto Club. Okay, welcome to the 13th meeting of the Junto Club on March 5th, 2021. So in the 1700s, Benjamin Franklin organized a group of his friends to create a club for mutual improvement. Inspired by this Junto Club, we're trying to kind of follow in the tradition and look to discuss topics around science, philosophy, politics, business, really anything in an effort to kind of improve ourselves, learn a little more, you know, challenge our beliefs and so on. Uh, and as for today, our main topic will be power and energy, both kind of what happened in Texas recently and renewables. Uh, she's going to talk about that a decent bit. But first, <laughs> but first, Biden is apparently going to try the Heartland visa. So of several episodes ago, we talked about uh, a book called One Billion Americans, and we discussed like a policy idea called heartland visas where you take immigrants and you make them live in the cities that have like declined population. Cause something I think most people don't realize, at least I didn't know was that most cities are actually declining in population. The majority of cities in the U S and you have these big coastal cities and a few sunbelt cities are growing and have a housing shortages and huge economic growth. And so that's what we think about a lot. Cause that's where everyone's going to, but the more cities are declining. So these heartland visas are basically the attempt to bring in immigration to allow immigration into the places you need, where these people are just like limited. Basically they got to live there for like three to five years. Then they get like a full green card that lets them move anywhere. So it's not like a permanent thing, but they got to do some temporary time in the Midwest or whatever. So what do you mean by they trying it? They're trying it. Um, I think what I read was they are going to do sort of like a pilot test of like 10,000 people roughly so that's not enough to make like a change to the economic situation of Nebraska, Michael's least favorite state in the country. Yeah, I haven't done my due diligence and looked up <laughs> facts to support my hatred for the state. But but, but 10,000 people, you can see how people like it, like the people who are on the visas. You can see how some towns deal with it, if they like it. And you can also see like you can start to get some numbers on, okay, this many people ended up like settling down in the place they were. This many people just waited and as soon as possible moved to New York or San Diego or XYZ large city that already has ample population. So it's kind of, you know, like I said, as a pilot test, they can get some more information about it. Ideally in like five years, they'll have some positive results and they'll start expanding it to, you know, be like a serious thing in terms of scale. That was nice. Sounds like the Biden administration have been listening to Junto Club. That's right. Well, That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so Biden, I know you're listening. Next on the list, carbon tax and dividend. Do it. Uh, mm. Sounds good. So everybody can just apply and then come in here and work in a location and then become a citizen in the future? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know that level of details, but let's, let's say the pilot's a success. 
I think potentially it's an avenue for increasing, opening more possible ways for people to immigrate, right? Like as an option for people who want to come that maybe couldn't get in through the other processes. It's like, okay, I'll do this heartland thing and I'll go to some small, you know, breadbasket city and, you know, help their declining population out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good. But I mean, so right now, recently there's a lot of news about it, uh, like uh, illegal immigrants try to cross the border, Mexican border, right? You, you, that usually happens when there's a when there's a Democrat assume the, I guess in the president, the White House, right? You just have all us immigrants try to come in, right? So, what, do you think that's a problem? Mm, not really. Why not? Why is it a problem? I mean, it's illegal crossing. I don't know. I mean, illegal immigration doesn't seem to cause that much many, if any, problems. Mm. Um, I mean, there's even some economic benefits from them. So like, I'm not, I mean, obviously we should fix our immigration system and try to address these sort of issues, but it's not like a high priority to me. I'm not quaking over Hispanic immigrants crossing the Southern border. I'm just wondering, are we really going to have to wait like five years though for like, I mean, I, a small pilot. You know, like to have like, I mean, a 10,000 isn't even really like a good power when you're dealing with like, you know, the, the number of cities that like need people. And I well, mean, remember, so. I assume, I mean, again, these are details I haven't looked into that much, but like, I, I assume the Heartland visas, it's got to be at least like three years that they, you need to stay in an area, right? Mm. So to get like the test along with setting it up and getting people's in, they need to wait for the duration of the visa to end so they can then see what people do afterwards. Right. So, you know, it's going to be at the fastest possible four years, right? Just to get things going, get people in for several years, see what they do. Cause I assume that's an important part of what they want to test. Sure. Uh, no, I mean, it makes sense. I guess I'm just wondering if you could be clever about your study design, <laughs> expedite it. But... Yeah, because, I mean, if you did just for, like, a year or something, you know, that would be – you'd miss the point, right? Well, I mean, I guess the one possibility is even after a year, like, a majority of the people stayed, and then you'd say, well, you know, you don't even need them to stay that long. But, right. you know, if it's a short duration and most people leave, you might just be like, well, yeah, the point was to have them stay for long enough, right? So right. kind of waste your time. No, I mean, I, w- I was thinking about potentially just having, like like, a certain number issued for, like – Oh, like, I mean, so people who finish higher on the point system need to stay for like a year. People Mm. who finish like, like a sliding window and like for the number of points you have for like good, you know, good immigration score, like you get like a one year requirement, like poorer immigration score, you get, you know, a five year requirement and, you know, you could stratify and see like you also get more information that way about like if the different groups are moving in different ways and stuff like that. But yeah. So the least, the less attractive your immigrant resume is, the longer you're trapped in Nebraska. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. It's just, yeah. But I guess if they just want to do the simple, straightforward way. Okay. Oh, uh, I might. How, 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 how are you scoring? You scoring by intelligence? I mean, intelligence, youth, health. I mean, all right, that's skills. good. Yeah. That directly lead me to the quote for the day from Benjamin Franklin. 
Okay. He says, quote, there are no fools so troublesome as those that have wit. What does that mean? Uh, this is, I uh, got, oh. you want to go, I, Mike? Well, I was just going to say, like, you've, you've always seen, like, the studies and, uh, like, advice they give to teachers in schools, like, oftentimes that, like, the students who are most intelligent or, like, like, are geniuses, you know, where they, like, essentially they get bored in class, so they turn to causing trouble because of their boredom. So, hmm. so that's something I've seen, but. I think, I think this is Benjamin Franklin basically discovering the Dunning Kruger effect, like a couple of centuries ahead. Who is that? The Dunning Kruger effect is, uh, I would have thought a well-known cognitive bias, where like when people like learn a little bit about a topic, they think mm-hmm. they're an expert because they've mm-hmm. learned a little bit, but they don't realize how much they don't know. So I think the the detail was if you like looked at how much people like practiced or learned something, and then you looked at how they rated their skill, it mm. like goes up. Like as you get a little bit, it goes way up. And then as you get better, it drops down because mm. you start to like realize like, oh, I actually, there's so much more that I don't know. And then mm. as you go to like true mastery, it goes back up. So the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is kind of that like early peak where people don't realize how much they don't know about something. Um, mm. Yeah. Almost you... like overconfident with a little bit of knowledge in a way. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And right. also there's a study that shows everybody thinks they are above average, right? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no. Right. Can you uh, repeat the quote, Shu? There are no fools so trouble- troublesome as those that have wit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with the what Matt's talking about, but I, I guess like that have wit. Yeah. I mean, it, like, so I would say that they have, like, you know, I mean, smart asses, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I guess. Uh, what were you gonna say? Well, no, 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 no. I, I guess it's. Uh, I, I mean, I can see where Matt's coming from. That uh, basically, if you don't know about something, you can be like knowledge in an area gives you modesty because like as soon as you sort of have enough knowledge about a certain topic to understand the depth of that topic it's very quick to see that like you're not gonna you're it's it's almost impossible to master everything about like a certain topic Mm -hmm. like that's why a phd thesis or something like that is so narrow so um but so I guess uh, like oftentimes it's the people who are smart asses are the people who don't necessarily have that sort mm. of true understanding of the depth. But I mean, okay. I still, I still hold to that. That quote also could relate to sort of uh, like people who are uh, in a situation where they may be bored or like, mm. I guess surrounded by things that. uh like, I mean, I like to be a smartass sometimes, so that's why I was thinking about that. So I, thought I know this quote. I thought that I, quote I, was very I, relevant. I pinned this quote for you, Mike. I see. So, Is it so for him or me, about him? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, to me, actually, I think my interpretation of that is that the people that, well, the people you know, you need to be careful of are the smart people, 
right? Not intelligent. If you're going to work with people, right? But do you rather work with someone who has like 2,000 points of IQ points, but who has like, it's a crook, right? Who has no character? Oh, you rather work with someone that has, you know, just an average IQ, but has a very good integrity, right? Who would you choose to work with, right? It's not, it's, you probably don't want to work with the, work with the smart people but has no morals right because they they are going to destroy you right so you cannot trust those people right because they they know how to you know how to i guess how to gain you right you know what i'm saying so i guess uh my i guess uh so i guess uh that's at least one my takeaway from that quote like right? the intelligence like be careful of with be careful of smart people i guess right <laughs> people that are smarter than you but you cannot who they you cannot trust all right. So, uh, so that reminded me, and I know eventually we're supposed to talk about, um, energy on this episode, but <laughs> what you're talking about, Shu, I think is less about intelligence and more about like empathy. So like, so, uh, there's this, uh, like in psychology, there's this notion of what's called like a six, uh, successful psychopath. Mm. And basically a successful psychopath is, uh, basically someone who does who lacks um i guess what you would say emotional empathy so they have cognitive empathy they can understand like how a person is feeling and but like when someone is feeling hurt or someone is feeling sad or angry like they're not as like emotionally responsive to that and so in the case of a successful psychopath like so unsuccessful psychopaths or criminal psychopaths are people Mm. who don't have particularly good control over like they're like they're very impulsive right so like serial killers or like you know criminals who commit like just any violent crime really like they would be considered more like criminal psychopaths but this uh, these successful psychopaths are often like ceos of companies like and that's because essentially they see a situation that they can take advantage of and they take advantage of it, like even if it hurts other people, because mm-hmm. they're not going to be like moved by like, oh, you know, my buddy Joe at the company like has a family and, you know, he he, he needs to take care of his wife and kids. And like, I'm going to take credit for his work. So I get the promotion and he doesn't like a lot of people would say like, that's a shitty thing to do. And like, it's going to hurt Joe, which, you know, causes causes some feelings of guilt or anxiety or something in them. But a successful psychopath would basically not have that like emotional, like emotionally empathetic response and would just be able to do it because it's, you know, yeah. What's who's Joe? Like Joe sure, is someone yeah. I can step on. Yeah. So. And that makes sense. I mean, yeah, but I don't think that has as much to do in this quote, but I mean, to me, I think that's a, I mean, even, I think I agree with actually, I think Matt's interpretation of that quote is probably more correct. It's like, mm-hmm. if you have, we need all, little knowledge you became overconfident and you became you basically fool yourself in a way right so anyway so let's uh move on to energy right all right right. before before we go to energy i've talked yeah go ahead i was just gonna say i won my interpretation was (laughs) judged by shu as superior yeah that's right well this is the first quote at least where we've disagreed like or had some different interpretations as opposed to just like yeah that's about right (laughs) All right. So before we talk about energy, we need to talk about time management. How do you guys do time management? Do you guys do time management at all? 
I badly. I t- manage yeah. my time very poorly. What about um, you, Mike? Um, I'm getting maybe a little bit better at it, but uh, yeah. I mean, normally it's just like show up every day, work like work a mm. large amount, and get done what I can, and just keep showing up. Okay. The reason I asked that question is because I have a struggle with time management myself. And recently, I've heard a different framework that is a little bit different on time management. Mm-hmm. It's called something called energy management, right? So instead of trying to manage my time, it's much better to ma- try to see manage your energy, right? Because sometimes if you might have time to do a lot of stuff. If you, like, for example, you, you block out like four hours to do something, but if you don't have the energy to do it, right, or just block out time to have a uh, relaxing time right but if you don't have the energy to even relax to do stuff that you intend to do you mm-hmm. know that time is wasted right so so if, another thing is like so yeah so you can find that to work but another thing is like you can apply it to and relationship as well right you, you have for example your friends you have interaction with them is this person give you energy right if you're not giving you positive energy it sucks energy from you that might not be a good interaction right so maybe mm-hmm. you could do something about it and stuff like that right no. yeah I, 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 I think that's yeah I, I mean it makes sense like really i mean obviously time is a limited resource but i mean really like you're able to like the in short windows of time it's really like your energy what determines what you can get done and not get done a lot of the time i mean not yeah. all the time but yeah i mean they're intricate intricately related right so yeah, yeah i think i assume everyone's had like experiences where like you've kind of had enough time but you're just like yeah you don't have energy like you're not motivated and it's just kind of like you're really sluggish and even if you're like trying to say write something it's just kind of not going anywhere and you can just like burn yeah you can just burn time not really being productive, especially, especially when it's stuff kind of like self-motivated at home style work, which, you know, more people are doing now. It's, you know, it's a little easier when you have like a shift, you just have to go into and like do your task. But so I get what you're saying, but what, like, you know, when you say like manage your energy, like do you have some examples of what that means or how you would do that? Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that for me personally would be right now, I really focus as I'm older, I'm getting older, I'm really focused on sleeping, right? So, for example, like if you if you want to try to save time, okay, I'm going to have by sleeping, I can get more time by sleeping like only six or four hours, right? But when you wake up, you have like what? You have a lot of time ahead of you during the day, but you're going to feel shitty. You have no concentration. You don't have energy to actually use the time productively. So, it actually, it's much better to sleep eight hours as much as you can and just wake up naturally and then have the energy to do the work during the day, right? And that's an example that I can think about like you can do right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's an example, yeah. Yeah, all right. So let's get on to... <laughs> let's, get, let's get into the real energy crisis in Texas. So yeah, so what happened? Do you, you want to guys... Now, do you know what happened? Actually, happened in Texas. Only at the very basic level. You should give like a summary, Shu. Yeah. Well, you should give a summary. I'm not very good at summary. I don't. I don't know enough to give a summary. Oh, basically, I mean, Texas. I think everybody knows anyway. So basically, Texas, like during the winter storm, right, a couple of weeks ago, everybody 
uh, the whole state lost power, right? Mm-hmm. So for like a few days, so many days, and basically their electrical grid infrastructure failed, right? So yeah, so that's basically what happened. Was it was it mostly like I know at least some people talked about gener- power generation failing, like stuff that couldn't run in the winter. But was it that, or was it a lot of like power lines getting knocked out by ice, or just uh, all of the not, above? not power lines? It's mostly uh, so. There a couple of factors. One is that is, is you are right. It's a resource. They don't have. They don't. They did not plan for it. So they did not have a lot of. They they don't have enough. Uh, supply like in the resource to like, the fossil fuels and also the wind and then all of course these turbines are not winterized so they are not they are not uh, able to run them right so they they they, they have much lower than like, supply and then demand of course during the winter should really high because everybody want to heat their home so they they need to they need they basically the whole system collapse right Mm. But most interesting, the reason, the root cause of that actually is the privatization of the uh, power uh, infrastructure, right, in the market, right? So that means it's the, basically capitalism fails in Texas, right? <laughs> so it's because they, they, they shift it to free market, right? Because they want to have high price to in, incentivize the power, like the, the power company they basically to compete and to actually make sure that they actually could have a good power system but that was that did not happen so basically capitalism doesn't work <laughs> those uh, are fighting words too yeah <laughs> no i mean i guess it makes sense where it's privatized that they wouldn't expend the money to winterize everything or like plan for things like this when it's such a rare case yeah i mean yeah but uh yeah, I mean, I certainly think that I don't need, I don't want like a state-run oil industry. I think we've seen. Well, yeah, I mean, also one one ironic thing is that Texas will actually call the like the energy capital of the country of U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he failed, <laughs> right? So anyway, so it's a, it's a basically my conclusion is a fail of capitalism, mm-hmm. free market, right? Well, I mean, utilities like power are one of the, you know, premier examples of like things that monopolies form really easily and right. Cause it's like difficult for, I mean, it depends how you set things up, but it's not necessarily easy for new competing people, right. To be able to say, Oh, this house is going to buy power from one company, but the house next door is going to buy power from another company. Mm. So, I mean, utilities, I mean, it varies by states and stuff around the country, but like they are like the go-to example of like, Hey, like these are natural monopolies is what they're called. Just um, based on how the, the market kind of works for this top, you know, this area. Okay. And obviously monopolies are bad. Markets work well when you can have efficient competition. And I don't, I don't think you can really do that with power. Why not? I mean, there are a lot of companies, actually, there are a lot of companies that Texas are doing it, but they're just not incentivized enough to for them to, I guess maybe, yeah, I guess power is not, it's hard to compete, maybe. So, yeah, maybe you are partially right, but yeah. But I mean, if you are purely believing free market, right, theory, then, or capitalism, right, mm. it should work, right, but it did not work. So that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Yes. Well, just because something doesn't work in a particular situation doesn't mean it's fundamentally flawed. It is. I mean, for example, like what? 
So if, if you have theory about capitalism, right, you you should not look for that it works like way it works. You should look for like evidence that disapprove it, right? If you find one thing that prove it to be false, then it's false. The whole theory is false, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no, I mean that's true. I guess. I mean, I'm not married to any of these arguments, but like, I mean, I guess it's obviously we're not, it's not like pure free market. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's it's probably not a pure free market system, but yeah. It's probably not. The barrier entry of those industries is ridiculously high right now. So as Matt said, it's essentially a localized monopoly, which requires some correction. Say it again. I said, like, yeah, I mean, localized monopolies require some correction. So. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I guess, okay, so let's, let's go into electricity, I guess. Like, how do you know how, I guess, uh, how electricity are generated in the, con- in the U.S.? Benjamin Franklin with a key and a kite. <laughs> are you saying you? now or saying originally? <laughs> oh. Like now, originally. Both. <laughs> I guess you want to go there. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, yeah. So I guess in the country, in the U.S. right now, because I want to get into it, I guess, like talking about nuclear energy stuff, right? But just current state, right? Like state of energy generation. Yeah. Number one is natural gas and then coal. And then nuclear might be third or is it hydro? I don't know. Then you start getting into the other stuff, but it's mostly natural gas and coal. Yeah, natural gas and coal, they are both called fossil fuels. Right, and those probably like seventy, maybe like fifty, I don't know, fifty percent. And then nuclear is twenty percent right now. And then the other twenty percent, I think, is like all these like hydro and all the other renewable energies. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't realize nuclear was already twenty percent. Yeah, nuclear is already, already. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's on the way down. Unfortunately, is it? Re- oh, okay. I didn't. I didn't realize that because I feel like it should be used, but there's. I know there's been. There's everyone's concerned about. But Chernobyl yeah, but here. yeah. Going but going back to when we talk about electricity, actually, Mike did bring out a very good point, which is Benjamin Franklin, right? Mm-hmm. So he usually, as I was doing research on this, I was I was like, okay, I was researching. Like, okay, I, I was wondering how Benjamin Franklin would be thinking about like energy and then i didn't really i forgot that actually he's the one that <laughs> kind of flying <laughs> flew the kite into the storm and tried to find do the first night more like experiment with electricity mm-hmm. so he's actually most commonly people associate he said oh he's not he discovered electricity right but even though there's a lot of people like electricity always been like discovered being used like a long time ago before him but he's the first one that actually do experiment with it and then from his resolve actually a lot of people I like, built on his like Michael Faraday, built built on top of his uh, resolve and to do more experiments, right? And mm-hmm. actually from and from like he actually like what he what we learned from uh, Benjamin Franklin, he actually like built like first the battery, like almost the very very first night like, battery, mm-hmm. and then he actually using like. He coined the terms like battery. He actually coined the term battery and also like coined the term like positive and negative charge, right? And then also charging and discharging, right? right. So those are terms we're using right now. Actually, it came from Benjamin Franklin. So he's the guy who had a 50-50 coin flip and got <laughs> positive-negative reversed and made it annoying 
<laughs> where in like electricity, you know, things always flow from the negative to the positive. And it's like, if you would have just switched those two labels. <laughs> yeah. So during that process, he actually, he actually came out with a very interesting theory called tender, tenderization. Do you know, do you know what that is? No. Actually, no. he have a theory that you can actually uh, tenderize, tenderize meat. By electrocuting it, did it work or did it just cook it? Yeah, I think well, I think it yeah. quite worked. He actually he wrote in his letter. I I actually cooked like ten pounds of chicken. I electrocuted like a turkey. He actually uh, was able to make it much tender. And then he came out with a theory that electricity can be used to tenderize meat. And <laughs> currently, actually, that's our researcher. I tried to working and I work on that to see if actually. Like to kind of make it work, basically. So interesting. I mean, is there a real difference between electrocuting and like just electrocuting it and like slow, like I mean, like what would cooking it? it? Yeah, cooking it. I mean, it's like I mean, like a slow cooker. If you cook like I mean, a meat that's very tough and like a like crockpot for fifteen hours, it's you know very soft. Well, that's interesting because well, with electricity, you could sort of distribute the heat throughout the metal but also cook it faster, right? You wouldn't right. have to do it real slow yeah. to get that even uniform thing. This actually reminds me, there's a, there is a food. There's something that's made cooked by electricity in large amounts. Do y'all know what it is? No. <laughs> All right. Japanese breadcrumbs called panko. They have like that really, you probably had oh, them. Okay. If you had like panko chicken. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like the really crispy, crunchy. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. really breadcrumbs are made by just, electrical putting dough between two metal plates and running electricity through it wait is that we, we we have a restaurant nearby called panko chicken right is that how they make that chicken uh, they probably just buy their panko i don't think they make it uh, you okay. never know maybe they do but yes that's what the name comes from is the pankos the bread comes hmm. pan oh. is japanese for bread so it's quite lit it's very close to literally meaning breadcrumbs i see mm-hmm. that's interesting Interesting. So you can yeah, around. so there is food cooked via electricity. Because of Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess. His legacy. Yeah. Food cooked with heat, pressure, and electricity. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's going back to energy again. So, we talk about fossil fuels, right? And then also the... But do you, I mean, I guess, Matt, can you, do you, do you, can you explain how actually electricity is generated from those fossil fuels? Like whatever the fuels you use? Don't, do they mostly still boil water with the heat? I think so, right? Don't they yeah. usually boil water and push the hot pressurized steam through a turbine and the turbine mm-hmm. turns to generator? Exactly. Boom, bada, bang. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. So I do have okay. a degree in electrical engineering, so... <laughs> Basically, basically, you just convert this fossil fuel into uh, like uh, energy. Uh, I guess the water, the steam, right? And the steam turns the mechanical fossil fuel turn it into mechanical energy. Mechanical energy actually like turn into these uh, uh, like magnets, right? And then magnetic like coils, and you generate like, electricity through those, right? So what? But what are what is fossil fuel? Fossil fuels are long carbon chains, hydrocarbon trains from made when plants from the dinosaur era were compressed 
it with a lot of pressure and heat over time. And then they turned into these, you know, things like coal and oil and they burn and release a lot of energy because they're a very dense storage of energy. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. So, so basically these, uh, for example, these are plants, right? Fossil fuel, they're called fossil fuel because they are like uh, plants or animals that die around 300 million ago, right? And they were, uh, back then, actually, in the whole you, the earth is like a swamp. So when they die, actually, the energy are actually stored in their body. And they got slow over time. They got covered by sand and clay. So they are covered. So their energy did not, especially in their body, did not decay away, Right. So then the, the body is still nice. So the energy are trapped in the, in there. So in the fossil. So now, so that's why, so that's why, uh, right now it's called fossil fuel, right? And those are basically sometimes they turn into like coal, right? Coal. And then also sometimes they turn into like, uh, natural gas. And they, they got, then they get trapped into some kind of shale, right? Stuff like that. So there's a natural gas, fossil fuel. And the other one is oil, right? Oil is one of those two. They basically turn into those. Actually, uh, fossil. So we are basically burning energy, our ancestors from like 300 million years ago, basically. So that's what fossil fuels are. And you know, those plants got the energy from the sun. So sometimes people like to be clever and say oil is solar power, just, you know, delayed by a few hundred million years. Yeah. So what do you mean by 300 delayed by a few hundred million years? Like, like the, the sun gave energy to the plants, which then died and became oil over hundreds of millions of years, and then we're burning it. So it's solar power, technically. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. You say it just take a long time. It's not renewable. It takes a long time to cycle, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it does make sense. So, but where does the sun get the energy from? Though? The sun? The sun gets energy from fusion, because lead is the most stable atom. I'm pretty sure it's lead. So anything that's lighter than lead wants to fuse and will fuse and release energy. And anything heavier than lead wants to have fission happen where like protons and neutrons shoot out of the nucleus and again, releases energy. And then I think lead's the lowest energy state atom. Mm. Mike's nodding. So I think he's in agreement with me. I'm in agreement with that. Yeah. So yeah. In the far future, we'll have a universe that's mostly lead, maybe. Mm. Cold and dead universe of lead. <laughs> Cold, okay, dead so, lead. So I guess in the whole, going back to the fossil fuel, actually in the whole universe, Earth is powered by the sun, right? Correct. So we got Because we we, the energy cannot be created or not destroyed, right? So we basically get, so the Earth get the energy basically from the sun back in the day and still getting it right now. Yeah, that is correct. Okay, but how does how does plants get the energy from the sun, though? Oh my gosh, we're going all over. We need like we can't just summarize all grade school science right now. Okay, we need to pick a topic, Shio. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. All right, that's good. So okay, this so fossil fuels, right? So I guess uh, of course they are very bad for for the environment, right? And they are not renewable, sustainable, right? Because we eventually going to be rain out. That's yes, both true so, statements. Yeah, I guess one one thing is uh, because, that's why people are nuclear energy. Right. I have a question. That are you familiar with the books Freakonomics? Yeah. 
I've heard of it. I never read it. Okay, so one of the things that one of the more interesting case studies they present in one of the three books is basically saying, uh, I, I, this is like from 15 years ago, so it's going to be very superficial, my description, but essentially they claimed that, so, I mean, as part of global warming, we've seen the temperature go up, you know, uh, like incrementally over the course of, you know, the century or whatever since the year, century and a half since the industrial revolution. And basically they talk about how there was a volcanic eruption that mm-hmm. spewed like, uh, so, I mean, when you say fossil fuels are like bad for the environment, I mean, I, you know, I mean, there's like cases of like oil spills and stuff like that, that have damaged like um, animal habitats. And, th- th- you know, that's one aspect, but the other aspect is obviously like the buildup of CO2 in the ozone. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so essentially after this volcanic eruption, they claim in this particular case study that essentially like, essentially it undid like due to some chemical composition that, uh, that I guess, I don't know if it neutralized the ozone or what the case may be, but it essentially undid like decades of like global warming or climate change. So how, so, how, how did he do it? Well, that's what, so, I mean, I, I'm bringing this up. I wish I had actually, like, gone back, but I, it didn't occur to me till you mentioned, uh, like, oh, like energy, the fossil fuels specifically being bad for the environment. But I assume there was some, I mean, I have to assume there was some type of, you know, molecule in, like, unleashed into the atmosphere that may have, um, had some type of, uh, you know, neutralizing effect or something like so- that. Mm-hmm. A potential – I mean if we're talking about undoing global warming specifically, right? Yeah. Well, one thing is I know there's – you can have sort of these like winters created by when a large volcano like explodes and releases like ash and stuff in the atmosphere that blocks light from the sun from getting to the earth. So is it that – I mean maybe there's a chemical that neutralized CO2. I wasn't aware of anything like that. But could it also have just been that it literally like reduced the heat by blocking sunlight? And that would be like how it undid like some effect of global warming? Um, I mean, that's, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, I was going to try to quickly Google this, but I don't want to just like leave the podcast. So when, so when they call when they, when they talk about CO2, like why, why is CO2 bad for the environment? Why is it? Well, CO2 is not toxic or anything, but it's a greenhouse gas. So what, what it does is it makes it the earth trap heat more effectively. So mm. normally, you know, heat like the sunlight, you know, hits the earth and a certain portion of heat and light bounces out and leaves. Um, so yeah, basically greenhouse effect, like a greenhouse you have in your backyard, it traps the heat in mm. making the earth rise. Of course, uh, I say in the atmosphere, it doesn't seem to be that bad. Like it's not at a high level, level to like hurt humans, you know, plants need it. Like we want some, but the ocean absorbs CO2 and apparently it's making the ocean kind of acidic over time as it's starting to absorb more and more CO2. So actually I think in the past they thought global warming would happen much faster. Mm-hmm. And then they realized like, okay, based on, because they were assuming, like, I think they were assuming the CO2 we were emitting would be largely left in the atmosphere. But now they realize, like, like oh, the ocean's acting as a carbon sink more than they thought, which is 
good in terms of delaying climate change becoming like a mass apocalyptic event, but it's bad in terms of us potentially making the oceans like acidic and toxic, which would be very bad. Okay. Okay. So, so, sorry. I just wanted to clarify. They actually, because of course, global warming is such a political issue and like, you know, people, anytime there's a solution proposed that isn't just like totally cutting like the use of fossil fuels or anything like that, there's a big outcry. So uh, they actually have like a response to people like specifically about this one chapter on their website that's prominently featured. So uh, their solution, I guess, are one of their more, they say, the most controversial of these solutions, a strato shield, involves the uh, controlled injection of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere to cool ground temperatures, which mimics the natural cooling effects of a big volcanic eruption like Mount Pinatubo. This sort of geoengineering solution is intensely disliked within environmental circles, and we discuss the reasons and we discuss the reasons why, and we discuss why if global warming gets worse, it might still be a good idea to consider further research on the strato shield so mm. I mean I guess I, I think it they do um sort of are talking about something like uh Matt might say that's something that essentially is put into the stratosphere to like shield sunlight slightly in order as a means of lowering ground temperatures uh, to prevent, you know, the melting. That's pretty good. Yeah. And you can also put, instead of putting the stratosphere, you just put solar panels on, on top of the stratosphere, right, to harvest the energy so you don't waste the sunlight, right? Yes, that's, that's well, an no, Elon well, if Musk you, solution. If <laughs> you, well, if you guys, guys, come on. <laughs> Y'all are engineers too. If you used a solar panel, once you used electricity, it would just become heat anyway on the earth. So you wouldn't have fixed anything. But yeah, so there's there's two ways people talk about blocking light. And one's the chemicals in the atmosphere, which I think makes a lot of people nervous because they're like, there's a lot of ways this could go really wrong. Yeah. And we, it's hard for us to really know for sure it's going to work. Another one is kind of what she said. Like people have talked about basically floating a bunch of satellites with mirrors out in space between the earth and the sun and, mm. you know, reflecting 5% of the sunlight off into other parts of the universe. And then boom, 5% cooler. <laughs> this is, I mean, you laugh, but this is something people have seriously proposed. I mean, those are two, they're basically two ways to do the same thing. They're like, Oh shit. Uh, the earth now like can like holds on to heat more. So we just block some sunlight and, yeah. you know, balance it back out. Yeah, very, very engineering solutions instead of solving the root problem, <laughs> root cause. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, so talking about root cause, I guess uh, nuclear energy have been proposing as one of the best alternative to fossil fuel, right? All right, sure. so so what is nuclear, nuclear power? What is nuclear power? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. All right, nuclear power is fission, the opposite of fusion, Heavy elements release protons and neutrons, uh, and that's a very energetic reaction. It, a lot of heat gets produced, the heat heats water, whatever. That's not important. What is important is that nuclear power is competitive for the safest and cleanest energy source in the entire world. When you look at the stats, even including Chernobyl, when the Soviets basically just fucked everything up, <laughs> nuclear has released less radiation to the environment than coal. And even if you want to say, oh, but coal's like been used for more power, even per watt of energy generated, including the Chernobyl disaster, coal releases more, has released more radiation per watt of energy. 
It's, it's cleaner. It's safer. If we had been building, kept building nuclear power plants from the seventies on as fast as we did for a few decades, we basically have a carbon free power grid. This would be it. Like we wouldn't really care about this problem. If we had built enough nuclear plants 30, 40 years ago, we'd have a basically nearly free clean energy. Boom. Like, okay, we'd still have cars, but we'd probably have like electric cars would probably be more popular because we'd be like, we have all this electricity to use. Like, let's, you know, use it for other things. Um, even if it's not as efficient in other things as uh, fossil fuels are for them yet. You're talking about rad- radiation is not much, but they kill, radiation kill people, right? I mean, coal doesn't kill people. Coal does kill people. The pollution wow. from coal kills <laughs> lots of people every year. I mean, nobody noticed. Nobody noticed. It's more subtle, right? Um, but like, you know, the lung, like when scientists lung, have tried lung. to estimate the things like lung cancer and asthma and stuff that people die from, and they can see areas around where like coal plants put out this pollution to the atmosphere, and they can see the increase in these sort of diseases and the number of deaths they cause and, you know, associate them. It's not an exact science. You mm-hmm. know, there's some estimating, but even conservative estimates put coal is far more lethal than nuclear and Mm. basically okay let's go through the biggest three nuclear disasters okay chernobyl number one obviously soviets they suck then you have basically fukushima and three mile island three mile island in the u.s definitely didn't kill anyone and i'm not sure if anyone's died from fukushima i think maybe one old person in the area they thought maybe got a cancer related to it like a few years later I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think, know if they've confirmed anyone dying from Fukushima. And again, those are the second and third worst nuclear disasters. Mm-hmm. What about the uh, hills yeah. have eyes, Matt? Sorry, what? What about the hills have eyes? <laughs> the the hills have the documentary eyes. of the documentary. Okay. So yeah. So I mean, there's a good, uh, what's the, fu- the name? Kurtzkoval or something. There's like a YouTube that does science things and they did a really good episode on this and they talked in detail about the studies of this. And basically, nuclear is cleaner and far less lethal than uh, any fossil fuel. But it's it's very, I mean, you say it's cleaner, but it's not really clean, right? You have to dispose of the nuclear waste, which is a pain in the ass, right? Yeah. It's not I mean, it's not that big of a deal for a few reasons. Okay, so one, there's not that much. Like all the nuclear waste that's ever been generated in the U.S. can like fit in like a football field or something like that, stacked a few feet high or something. Like Mm -hmm. we're talking about decades, like it's just not that much. Okay. Two, there's nuclear waste sort of has, well, when you think about what nuclear, like new nuclear materials are, they can either be very dangerous or they can last a long time, but they can't do both. Right. Cause when a, when something's radioactive, it's literally the atoms are decaying. So they're literally emitting things out. Every time an atom decays in like a bar of uranium, that atom no longer can ever decay again. Like it's done. It released its thing. It released the energy and the radiation. It's over. So things that are highly radioactive don't stay highly radioactive for very long. So they kind of become more inert quickly. Things that are like a little bit like the things that are like, oh, we have to store this nuclear waste for thousands of years. I mean, sure, I guess, but they're not very radioactive, right? Like, a thousand years in, it's very, very weakly radioactive. Not that you'd want to go bathe in it or anything, but it's not some like major disaster waiting to happen. Um, so mm-hmm. I mean, so it's not like a total non-issue, but compared to pumping out pollution and CO2 from like, like coal plants, it's like ridiculously a non-issue. 
Okay. Like, you know, it's like your legs cut off and then someone wants to, you know, give you a shot in your arm with some antibiotics and you're like, this syringe hole might make me bleed out. And they're like, like, that's almost nothing. It's just like a non-issue. There's like things that are so much more important and this can help, you know, to give you some fluids and stuff or whatever. I, mean, I don't know. There's a dumb analogy, but you get the point. Yeah, it was pretty dumb. But I mean, <laughs> code, yeah, you're talking about codes. It still kill people, but natural gas doesn't, right? Natural gas is still good. Fossil fuel. It's better. It's much it's cleaner. Yeah. And I think it does less CO2 and other greenhouse gases per watt. Mm -hmm. So it's better. Like it's an improvement and it's good. So the U.S. has had a big decrease in coal, mostly due to natural gas replacing it, which is not bad as a short term thing. But the, the, the long term issue of climate change is still not solved by natural gas, right? Because natural gas still burns and releases CO2. Okay. Now, what about nuclear power has, because one of the reasons that you, you're saying that this haven't been happening a lot of accidents and they don't kill a lot, that many people anyway, because we don't have a lot of nuclear power, right? Power plants. What happens in the future if we have a lot of nuclear power plants? Don't we increase the probability of one's going to fail? Like, could they have like, more accidents, basically? I mean, that is true, yes. Like, in a sense that the more the number, the higher the number, the more chance you have. But like most of our plants, we first of all, we do have a decent number. They're just old, right? Like we built a decent amount decades ago and they've said, how many plants are in the US? How many? I'm going to look this up. Okay. So, I'll... Well, okay. I mean, I think Matt's answer would probably be yes. As you increase the number, the likelihood of them failing also increases or the like likelihood of one failing also increases but i mean basically overall like each individual plant is going to be very very safe and produce very very little waste and you're replacing entities like sources of energy that we know produce damaging like something damaging to the environment so it's like we know we're getting rid of like we know we're reducing negatives on all fronts. So the risk of like one failing, like remaining, it, that remains small enough where it still would be worth it. So I was going to, I just double check. So we got right now, we have about a hundred reactors at roughly 60 plants in the U S mm. and again, most of these have been for decades. Like I don't think there's been a new nuclear plant finish in a while. If I remember reading that right, but my main point is new like with the technology we have, plants were already safe when they were built in like the 70s. With the technology we have now, we can make them perfectly safe. You can make passive systems where even if power is cut off and the whole thing shuts down, like the the process stops. Like the reactors designed that if you just hands off to do everything, they stop the, the fission. Um, you know, I've seen things like, so like they can do things where they drop like bars that go between some of the fuel rods and like block the reaction and stop it. Mm -hmm. And so they'll do designs where basically these hang overhead. And if you're not actively using power to keep them, they'll just fall and then they'll stop the reactor from basically going. They'll stop the process. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a very simplified explanation, but essentially you make this sort of passive system that is almost fail safe. Obviously, you can never be truly completely fail safe, but it's mm. just not a big risk. But is your worth is your risk worth taking though? Yes. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Now, what about the other things about 
because you're producing uranium, right? And I guess using uranium to, but what about like terrorist attacks or terrorists, right? Because this nuclear weapon can be used as nuclear power. Like the stuff you're producing can be used as nuclear weapons, right? What about that? I mean, you don't just sell it to Russia. Like, I don't know. It's not, is it that hard? Like we've done it successfully, not let terrorists get uh, important nuclear, you know, stuff for decades now and just keep doing that. Mm, what are you talking about Russia? Russia has its own their own nuclear weapons, so they don't yeah, need. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Sell it to whoever, whatever, you know, terrorist organization wants to try to do a dirty bomb or something. Mm. Like, And, like, it's not like you can make a nuclear weapon out of nuclear waste, right? Like, the stuff that comes out of power plants, I mean, these are details, but, like, depending on the type of reactor, the waste that comes out generally cannot be turned into a bomb, like a nuclear bomb. Like, you can't make a nuke. But you could potentially make a dirty bomb where you just explode like regular explosives like C4. And if you had some nuclear waste, then you spread out this like radioactive material in the air. And that could hurt a lot of people um, and definitely make a you know, bad case terrorist attack. So it's not like nothing, but you know, mm-hmm. it's not like they're going to level the entire city of New York with uh, you know, the output of a power plant. Well, I mean, if you... If you you got a lot more people like investing in nuclear power, the technology can improve, right? And then maybe in the future it might be easier to make you the uraniums, right? To produce the uranium, actually, maybe it would be easier for people to, because you, if everybody have poor money into it, you know, it will improve in the future. It might be easier for terrorists for anyone to actually create a nuclear bomb. Well, it. I mean, it depends a lot on the technology, right? Like the people have talked about. There's something called thorium reactors which is like a different type i mean it's um basically i don't know a lot of details but it's it's basically uses thorium instead of uranium and as far as i know like it's just you can't make a weapon out of it period and there's other potential advantages including the fact that there's way more thorium around um so like if the technology goes in a direction like that then maybe you know maybe you actually make it less likely that anyone will be able to get a weapon from it because you've replaced what was dangerous technology with safe technology. How 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 realistic, uh, how dangerous is it for people to blow up a nuclear power plant? Like if terrorists try to attack it, like I, mean, I don't know, fly a plane through it or something, you know? Is it going to be a big disaster if that happens? I don't, I don't think so. Well, me and you went into SATSOP, right? The Washington one, remember? Yeah. Yeah. Imagine a plane flying into that. I don't think it would have hurt the reactor at all. They have so many layers and deep. It was so, so many layers deep in the earth, huge concrete walls. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, I think it would have been like, I think the reactor would have been fine if they flew a plane into it. Like, gotcha. um, so I mean, the, you know, difficulty of attacking it. Well, I guess uh, it just sounds very dangerous, I guess, to a lot of people, right? If, for example, if someone maybe in some, uh, I, I don't know, some, uh, some, uh, terrorists not infiltrate the nuclear power plant, right? Or someone work there and they want to, you know, instead of having a machine gun, gun down, uh, you know, people in a room, they just walk into a nuclear power plant and then blow the whole thing up, right? I guess that I don't, like, I mean, what do you mean just blow the whole thing up? These things have, like, even if- I, I don't know. They Maybe spend like a day loading hundreds of pounds of explosives across the whole plant and no one does anything. And then they have some major simultaneous detonation. Like these are not, 
realistic know. concerns. Like, like this is such an outlandish scenario. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, but what if this crazy hypothetical happens and they manage to blow this up? Well, what if, uh, you know, we don't use the free, not free, the clean source of energy and we keep, you know, destroying the planet? Like, <laughs> you know, that's the bigger concern because it's what's actually happening, not some episode of Mission Impossible. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So I think, uh, so nuclear power, you have been, I thought you were, I don't know why you, why you so excited about nuclear power. Cause uh, I thought you were very into solar power. So, cause, uh, because now these fossil fuels, they are limited, right? You eventually we're going to run out of that fossil fuels. Right. And then also nuclear, nuclear, you get this, you, you need to mine, uh, I think there's a field that you need to mine to, to, to do the fission, right. To, to, to get the nuclear power, but that also can, results can ring out in the future, right? So why are you so excited about nuclear power instead of my like solar power, which can be infinite, right? Well, I'm excited for both. Now, nuclear, especially when you get to things like thorium and potentially other materials, we basically have enough to run for like power as much, sorry, we have enough to provide enough electricity for like thousands of years. To the point where it's like not really relevant. Like it's limited, yes, technically. But I mean, technically the solar power is limited too, right? The sun's going to eventually blow up and uh, stop shining, right? But like, so there's like a scale of time where it doesn't really matter. Mm. Um, but they're both great. They should both be used. And they're nicely complementary in the sense that like, like nuclear is a good baseline, right? So like it provides a very stable baseline of power and solar is more flexible cheaper to get into like specific places and to supplement quickly and i mean i could be biased from living in the south but like generally people use more power in the day this is actually true almost everywhere they use more power in the day even when it's colder just because that's when people are up doing things running things maybe in like the far north when you need to heat at night uh, during the winter that switches around, but it's very common for power usage to be up during the day, which is when solar power is most effective. So you could imagine a system where nuclear provides a base and solar provides supplement that naturally without really any special effort kind of follows the demand curve of people fairly well. So, you know, along with just a little bit of extra battery storage and stuff, you now have like a complete power system that can like deal with human activity. Hmm. All in right. theory, you could do just things like wind and solar and be good. And that might be what we end up doing because there's still so much resistance to nuclear and it's, it takes a while to build up. It's not clear if it really will end up being a solution. But if we don't have it, we need way more energy storage, way more battery storage, and we need way more solar and wind in the first place. So, you know, we're talking about like tripling the amount of, you know, solar and wind so we can have enough excess that we can then store it in different battery or energy storage systems. And then they can be, those storage systems can be used during the night, during, you know, times when the sun doesn't shine, times when the wind isn't blowing, et cetera. So, yeah, this sounds all good, but why, so why is solar energy not very widely adopted now? I mean, I guess like, I feel like it's starting to be wildly adopted is the first thing I would say. I mean, obviously it's still less than things like nuclear or fossil fuels, but it's really cost to power, right? Mm-hmm. But the good news is, I mean, people have been tracking like the price to get some amount of solar panels like that generate so much power. 
Mm-hmm. And it's been like the power you get for dollar you spend has been going like exponentially increasing over the last like 10, 20 years from solar. Mm. So I think a lot of people are looking at that trend and saying, you know, as long as this continues more or less, it won't be long before solar becomes the cheapest power source. And it'll still be unreliable, which causes other issues. But if it's clearly the cheapest power source, that changes the game, right? Like, as that happens, solar will, you would expect solar to really start to overtake the market and become a major provider, perhaps the biggest provider of power. Why is it unreliable? So the sun doesn't always shine. Yeah, but you don't need the sun to be always shining. You can just, whenever it's shining, you can just store the energy already, right? Yeah, but it's still unreliable, right? So you're storing power to save for when it's unreliable, but it's still unreliable. Like that's what people, in the energy context, this is what people mean. Like something like fossil fuels and nuclear power, you can run 24-7 all the time, no matter the weather, no matter the time of day. Hmm. But things like solar, you have to have, again, you have to have storage, which creates extra cost if this is what you want to be like your main power system, right? If this is... If you're trying to power a city by solar, you can't just build solar panels. You need the storage. Mm. Okay. So I guess, uh, do you know what's the efficiency? So for example, you have sunlight and it's shining on a solar panel, right? Is it how, what's the efficiency of converting that energy into electricity? Is it like 20%, 30%? Or is, I know it's probably not 100%, right? Yeah, I thought it was in the 20s or like around 20 Okay. Uh, and a quick Google says most panels are between 50 and 20%. Um, yeah. So I think that's the, you know, order roughly. We can say okay. 20 slightly optimistically and that could improve over the future, but yeah, it's yeah. not going to, you know, ever going to, I don't think it'll ever be like 80% or anything, right? There's just physical limitations, but. Hmm. Yeah. Over the, I guess over the last few years, the last five years, actually solar has becoming more adopted and then yeah, it became like yeah it actually produced like two percent of the energy in the u.s right now being used only two percent right now but i think there's a lot of potential that it can go even more right mm-hmm. i mean i, I want, think I'll, i was sorry, just gonna say mind. just based on like walking around i'll say like like during the pandemic walking around and like looking at new construction like a lot of new construction is incorporating solar panels into it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. nice so, so yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So, as, so there's going to be like the technology is continuing to improve. So that's one factor. Two, there's the economy of scale. As solar becomes like a major provider, it's going to get cheaper just to manufacture just because you have more large scale solar panel factories and stuff set up. And three, I think there is climate change is becoming a bigger deal in culture over time. Like it's becoming a larger focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, more Americans, slowly but surely, more Americans are saying like it's a concern. And I think solar is a very much like a well-viewed solution. Like I don't think there's much criticism of solar. So yeah. even if it's not the most economic thing, I think kind of what Mike said, like big companies might throw solar panels on their th- building, that their you know their new headquarters just to look green and friendly, right? But that helps. Yeah. So sounds like if. If I'm gonna invest in, invest money into like your nuclear solar, it sounds like solar is no brainer, right? Uh, that's the one I invested in. I agree. <laughs> There's a difference between what I think we should do and what I think will happen. Right? Those are not the same <laughs> things. 
What should we do build more nuclear? Yes. Well, I think there will be a lot of more nuclear. I'm less confident. Def- I mean, much more confident about solar. I mean, even though based on what you say, I'm still like we should just, even though for me, I feel like we still still should just do go all in on solar, right? Because because the nuclear power, it costs a lot of money to build the power plants and maintain it over time. That's a lot of cost, right? And how much benefit you get, you're not sure, right? In, and also on top of that, you have all, all these like dangerous the risks, right? So, I mean, sounds like just, I mean, and it's personal to me, solar is way much better than we should just go all in for solar instead of putting any money into nuclear. Yeah. So you're forgetting the baseline problem. Like, yeah you can't go in all in on solar because there is not a technology to store the energy effectively right now. There, There's a lot of companies researching new battery technology and other energy storage stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a cool one where they take cranes and they stack these big cement, basically concrete blocks. Think like massive concrete Legos. And they'll have like a tower with several electric cranes, right? So they'll spend energy to stack them up. And then when they want to get energy back out, the crane picks it up and then just slowly lowers it while the weight of that basically reverses the motor generator and uses it to power it. So it's storing the energy as potential energy of these massive concrete blocks. Very interesting stuff. But as of now, none of those, as far as I know, none of those businesses have really done like a large scale proven highly successful. So you couldn't go to mass solar because there's no way to store the energy to power things at night. Currently, what would happen currently is fossil fuels would come in as that baseline reliable you can generate whenever you need. But if you want to replace fossil fuels entirely, you need a baseline, which is, again, nuclear is an option. New storage technology is an option. We just don't have it yet. Nuclear is a technology we do have. Okay. Sounds good. That makes sense. That's good. Good point. But talking about battery storage, do you know which company has the best battery technology currently? Tesla, yeah, let's go. The solar panels thing, Tesla, Tesla. And so they might be the closest, but I don't, like, even what Tesla used, it was like, wasn't it for like short term? They did some tests in Australia, I think, right? But was it, I think it was more like very short term. I don't know. I don't know if the things they set up would be adequate to like power a city for a day or two. Not, not right now, but just think about it. Even though a lot of people say Tesla and the companies over being overvalued right now, which is probably true. However, if you take it into turn in the future, it, maybe it would not be your car company anymore. It would basically be an energy company, right? Could be. You're going to be a s- store on the solar energy and then just be a battery company. That, I, I mean, Tesla bought a solar city a while ago, like five years ago, right? So what are they going to do with it, right? So they probably going to do it, you know, do that at the same time. Also, they have the perfect, very good battery technology. So I guess the lesson today is just, Buy more Tesla, I guess. <laughs> Buy more Tesla stock. Let's see. We should have a weekly section that's just we check the Tesla stock price. Oh, it's down. It's yeah. under 600. Wow. Exactly. What a steal. <laughs> I know. Buy it now. Oh, my gosh. We're going to get this value. <laughs> so do you know who one well, person that Elon Musk admire a lot and study a lot? And he exactly. <laughs> I think it all comes back. Because, what? I said it all comes back. Yeah, I think one of the reasons because Benjamin Franklin actually built the first battery almost like, right? So the earliest battery. So I think, anyway, that's my assumption right now. I just, I was like, whoa. Yeah, when I find out about like 
Benjamin Franklin building the first battery. I said, oh, that could be one of the reasons why Elon Musk liked Benjamin Franklin a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. To, to go tangential for a little bit, Don, I think a lot of the new energy source technology is pretty interesting. Because, like, I would be surprised if just, like, the solid-state chemical batteries we have now are the solution we end up using, right? Like, I mean, obviously, batteries are fine for your phone, but for like the sort of mass large scale storage, like, is that really the best solution? Um, I thought storing it as potential energy is really cool because I mean, obviously you always lose it when you convert back to electricity, but potential energy never goes away. Right. That's like perfect storage. Um, I've seen stuff with like large scale liquid batteries. So you have these giant like vats um, that function as a battery rather than like a single solid thing. I've even seen one that, try to store it as like heat like there's been things that they basically they make like super well insulated things and just like store the heat and then say like you know that's like a battery which over a few days might just be fine right Mm. there's a lot of interesting tech there we'll see it's cool because a bunch of companies are trying stuff which is a perfect way to for have someone hopefully find a really good solution yeah i i think i have a some company are using nanotechnology to create like better batteries right so those could be has a lot of potential as well yeah. I don't know how they do it, but you know, it sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about nucleus, fusion, right? What about fusion reactors? Fusion. I mean, it'd be cool. It's just so difficult to do. We can't don't have the technology to make it like like we have the technology to create fusion, but not on a sort of scale and efficiency that we could actually use it for power generation, right? Because yeah. I mean these things essentially use like if you look at how fusion plants have been built, they basically have these massive superconductors that have to be cooled to like nearly zero, like Kelvin. And then you have to create these huge magnetic fields that the magnetic fields keep like this extremely hot plasma in place. And then it's kind of like a mini sun, yeah. but like the technology and the, it's just ridiculous what you have to do to make it work. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's just something because I was thinking about, I was reading about sun. Getting we we are getting all energy from sun. I was like, why can't we just create a fusion and same process on Earth, right? A mini sun in a way. But anyway, so yeah. Yeah. The problem is the fusion seems to happen at temperatures and pressures that vastly exceed anything that happened on Earth. Mm. So we have to create that environment and then control it. <laughs> And then collect more energy than it took to create that ridiculous environment. All mm. of this is very difficult. Okay. All right. I think that's uh, that's pretty good from from my side on um, energy. I hope uh, <laughs> you guys enjoying that. Anyway, so personally for me, actually, I don't know anything about like, energy and fossil fuel before I did some research for this uh, episode, like this meeting. So I actually found it much more interesting now because uh, I actually ha- I had no idea. I always have been wondering, like, why do they call it fossil fuel, right? <laughs> and then I was reading, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Now it's just like 300, 300 millions ago, this became fossil and you're just burning it right now. And like just basically converting sun energy into, we are burning the sun energy again, like releasing it, right? So mm-hmm. everything is by just... Basically, everything we do right now, getting energy, just burning stuff, right? Like burning oil to get, get our car moving and stuff. Right? Anyway, just, and then, then just made me more, I guess, understandable of how 
kind of how the world works a little bit better. So after mm-hmm. so the research, so that's good. I guess they're going. Oh, I just said that's good. Yeah, and that's the purpose of this gentle club, I guess. Gentle club. <laughs> <laughs>